Do you do a lot of group singing in your life? Are you in a, you know, glee, adult glee club groups and stuff? I was, I was explaining to one of my kids, like, uh, the musical world that I grew up in, it was a private, small, private Baptist school, and so I was in choir, I was in chorale, I was in men's choir, and it was like, there was only like a handful of kids, so you're just getting strong-armed into everything, you know, and it was all like the basketball team guys were in the men's choir, you know, so I was singing all the time, but as soon as I got out of that environment, I realized, like, this is not a normal thing, <laughs> you know, like, most people are not singing in big groups, right? so when we come to church on Sunday morning, it can be a very sort of uh, disorienting experience. Hey, you guys had a rough week. Now we're going to sing? Do you find that hard? We, were, we, we had a, a music team class recently, and I can't remember who. Some people were sharing, and, and we all agreed with. Sometimes, you know, you would think that the music team are the people who are, like, they're just always singing and snapping their fingers and humming, and, but we're not. You know, we, a lot of times, many of us, many times, come to music rehearsal thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe I have to do that tonight. And we're, we're bent about something. They happen on Monday night. So you get the whole Monday thing, and then you're coming into music rehearsal, and you feel like, I don't want to be doing this. But we all agree together within a couple minutes of singing that the songs work on us, and, and we enter into that, that spirit of prayer a spirit of praise there. But singing is hard. It's hard for people who love to sing. It's hard for the rest of us who don't really sing. Singing can be a difficult experience, and it's always difficult. Why? Because, because you had a rough day. You had a rough morning. Because life is hard, and things are hard, and there's sin in your life, sin in other people's life that's affecting you. There's accidents and, and things that are disturbing your life. There's things that have happened to you that are bothering you, things that you're worried about that are ahead of you there's of course all the bad news in the world and there's there's a lot there's just a lot of these things and and we are in what feels like a flood of these things a bad news flood and we're going to see the the metaphor for flood is going to be kind of a controlling metaphor for our chapter here Isaiah 24 a flood of bad news. And sometimes you come into a place like the church, you come into a time of singing, you just feel like, is this okay to be singing? Is it okay that we're, you know, with all the things going on in our lives, with all the things going on in the world, is it okay to be singing? Well, this is the same sort of emotional experience that Isaiah is describing in Isaiah 24. So let's look at Isaiah 24 together. Isaiah 24 is a lot of bad news. It is a bad news chapter. Isaiah 24 is all about, this is the kind of a summary of it. Uh, the main point of this chapter is that the sin of plunder is going to result in global ruin that is going to affect everyone and everything. The sin of plunder is going to result in global ruin that affects everyone and everything. We see this beginning in verse 3. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The, earth, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. If you look down a little bit to verse 16, 
This is Isaiah sort of responding to this bad news. And he says in the middle of verse 16, he says, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me, for traitors have betrayed, with betrayal the traitors have betrayed. Which sounds crazy and repetitive in English, but actually each of those words, traitors and betrayed, is actually the same Hebrew word. So he actually says the same thing five times. And it's this word for greedy, deceitful plunder. So what he's actually saying there is the greedy, deceitful plunderers have greedily deceived and plundered with greedy, deceitful plunder. The greedy, deceitful plunderers have greedily, deceitfully plundered. He's just overwhelmed with what he sees here. And he's freaking out about it, right? This sounds like the language of somebody who's freaking out. So what we're talking about is the sin of plunder resulting in global ruin that affects everyone. As we walk through this chapter, going back to the beginning, verses 1 to 3, Look at verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. Verse 3. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. The earth is going to be emptied. Verses 4 to 13. It's going to be emptied not just of inhabitants. It's going to be emptied of joy. Look down at verse 11. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. It's empty, it's empty of joy. It's empty of hope. That's the point of verses 17 to 20. We read in verse 17, Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth, because he who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into a pit. And if you're lucky enough to climb out of the pit, you're going to be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are open and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is empty of hope. And then the last section, verses 21 to 23, reading in verse 21, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of earth on earth. There's not going to be any power anywhere that is going to be able to save them. He's going to empty the heavens and empty the places of power of their inhabitants as well. So what this is describing is global ruin that affects all life and no one can escape. And, it, and it, it's almost the inverse, right? The flood is very wet as <laughs> a flood. This is almost the inverse of that, but he's evoking the images of the flood. In fact, in verse 18, what we just read, the windows of heaven are open. This is the only other place outside of the flood story, Noah and the flood, that that phrase is used. He's evoking the images of the flood to say that's what is coming, a global Catastrophe, a flood-like global ruin. How did, how did this happen? How did this come to be? And there's, there's really kind of two ways that this passage answers that question. How did this global ruin come about? And the first we see back in verse 5, where he says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Human beings have defiled the earth by their greedy, deceitful plunder that he was freaking out about in verse 16. They go against the laws, the statutes, and the covenant of God. Now, none of those laws, statutes, or covenants are specifically named in this chapter. So we don't think that this is a reference to specific Old Testament commands, although if you wanted to talk about like thou shalt not murder, steal, lie, uh, what's the other, covet, right? These are all of the underlying motives for greedy, deceitful plunder. 
So there is some resonance there with the Ten Commandments, but none of those are referenced here. Sort of a general a general law, command, statutes, covenant. And so we think this is referring to sort of the, the, the general design of the Creator, which is reflected in the Old Testament laws. Think about the way that Paul sort of differentiates these two in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, he says there, I am not under the law of Moses, but I am under the law of God. So the law of Moses reflects God's law. And this is talking about that greater design, that greater law. And what he's saying here is that earth's inhabitants, verse 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. They have sinfully violated God's creation design in order to greedily consume. They've sinfully violated God's design in order to greedily consume. So this global ruin is going to come about because human sin results in an earth empty of joy and hope. That's the first part of the story. But another, another answer to this question is God's judgment. We see this in verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. The Lord's going to do it, right? Verse 3, the earth shall be empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word, has spoken this word. And at the end of this chapter, in verse 21, on that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven. So it's also very clear that this is people's doing and it's God's doing. It's God punishing and judging the earth and these people. Right, so greedy, deceitful plunder, we just saw, violates God's law. It breaks God's law. And so God's judgment is to empty the earth of joy and hope. See, both these things, it's human sin is going to result in, a, in an earth empty of joy and hope. And divine judgment is going to result in an earth empty of joy and hope. Breaking God's law is God's judgment in this chapter. God's judgment, and this is perhaps the most terrifying aspect of God's judgment, but throughout Scripture, it's God's judgment is, okay, have it your way. Remember in Romans chapter 1, the way Paul describes that these people who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, and God comes in and says, what's going on? And he's going to judge them, and what does he do? He gives them up. He says, okay, do what you want. Because God's laws contain God's judgment. Let me explain what that means for a second here. How does God punish? Right? How does he smite and judge? Other gods will use things like hammers, lightning, bow and arrow, you know, spells and sorcery. Right? Other gods will use these sorts of things. What does our God use? They need tools. What does our God use? And all our God uses is his word. All he uses is his word, not in an incantation spell kind of way. He uses what he's already said. He uses what he has already said, his laws, his statutes, his covenant, his design. These things are so wise and so powerful and so true that he doesn't have to police them with weapons and threats. They contain the judgment. You break it, you get the bad thing you're trying to avoid. They contain the punishment. They contain the judgment. Think with me just for an illustration of lying. Why do people lie? People lie because they want some social advantage. 
right? They, or, or they want to avoid some social disadvantage. But people lie because they want social advantage. Oh yeah, I did that too. Right? They want to look like they're up there socially. Well, lie, God says don't lie. All right, so what happens if you, if you lie and if you give yourself up to lying? Is God going to like, again, break into your room and say, hey, knock it off, I'm smiting you. No, what happens when you lie is it gets easier. Right? Lying gets easier. And when things are easier, you do, more, you do it more, right? You lie more and you worry less about it because now you're, you're good at it. So you're lying more, you're less concerned about it, and then what happens? You get caught, right? You get caught, and now what are you? Now you're a liar. And so now you are always suspicious. Everything that you say, no, I really did it! Right? You have to say that with everything because... You're a liar, which means you're always at a social disadvantage. The very thing that you set out lying to fix, now you are always at a social disadvantage. The, the judgment for being a liar is being a liar. All right, so God's laws contain God's judgment. This is what we see depicted in Isaiah 24. So the sin of plunder is going to result in a global ruin that affects everyone and everything. Can we get out of this? Right? I don't want to be a part of that. Is there a way to escape? I have good news and bad news. Right, so look with me at verse 14. So in the midst of this, this emptying of the world of joy, hope, verse 14, they, we don't know who they are, They have not been introduced, but they lift up their voices and they sing for joy. We just read in verse 11 that all joy has grown dark, but here in verse 14, they're singing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west, therefore in the east, give glory to the Lord, and the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. In this new kind of flood, There's some sort of little community here that is like an ark. Out there, it's raging terror. In here, there's songs of joy. This little thing is filled with joy. Outside is emptied of joy. So who are they? These are the uh, scattered exiles. In in the context of what Isaiah is speaking to, these are going to be the scattered exiles, the vulnerable gatherings of God's people. And for them, this message of global ruin is actually, though it's fearsome, it's kind of good news. It's kind of good news. There's something that they're grateful for, that God has kept his word, that he has shown himself to be faithful and righteous, that he has judged these global greedy, deceitful plunderers. And so they, they can sing. So while the world is emptying around them of joy and hope, they have joy and hope. Because they know the Lord. Because they know that the Lord is righteous. They know that the Lord is good. They know that He is going to keep His word. So, yes, we can escape this by getting in the ark, by being one of these people. But at the same time, we look at verse 16. 
Isaiah hears this about these people singing. From the ends of the earth, we hear these songs of praise. But, but he says, but I say, he says, I waste away. I waste away. He says, I can't eat anything here in these judgments. I'm sick over this vision of what will be. Woe is me for the traitors have betrayed. Right? Isaiah, God's own prophet, is going to, he's going to go through this as well along with, with every other inhabitant. In fact, that's one of the emphases of this chapter. We see it in verse 2. It shall be as with the people, with the priest, the slave, the master, the maid, the mistress, the buyer, the seller, the lender, the borrower. Everybody's going to be affected. We see this in verse 17 and 18. Terror and pit and snare. You're going to run from the terror. You're going to fall in the pit. You're going to get out of the pit and step into the snare. Everyone is going to be affected by the ruin caused by the greedy, deceitful plunderers. So, at this point, we, we're, we're interested in this little arc, right? We're interested in this arc. I, I, I'm not really, I don't want to think too much about the emptying of the world of joy and hope and power. How do I get in the ark? Right? Is that even good, right? How, in view of all of these sorrows that he's describing, is it possible for some people to be singing? How can joy and hope get mixed in with these troubles and with these sorrows? What do they know about God? What is it that they know about God that gives them joy in their sorrows? Because we want to know that same thing. We want to know that too. And so what they know about God there, we're just going to go ahead and jump to Jesus now. Because what they knew about God then, we know even more clearly in Christ today. And we're going to see it more plainly in him. Because there is a, a handful of things that are true about Jesus that are very relevant, that are very relevant to what's happening in Isaiah 24. So think about this with me. First of all, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. All things were made by the Word of God. I, don't, I, I didn't point this out or draw attention to it, but in Isaiah 24, verse 3, it says that the Lord has spoken this Word. The Word of God, Jesus Christ, made all things. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus Christ upholds all things by the Word of His power. He made all things. All things are sustained by him. And then in John 5, Jesus drops this bombshell. He says, the Father judges no one. So, so get rid of that whole vision of the, the, the white-haired, bearded, uh, old white guy sitting up there just scowling at you all the time. He says, the Father doesn't judge anybody. But he has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus made it all, sustains it all. And it's all his, and he's going to judge. So as in other places in Scripture, just to meditate on this for a moment, it says that in him, and from him, and for him, that is Jesus, are all things. His word, his word, he made all things. He binds together all the processes that make life happen. So the, the, the cells and the molecules and stuff in our bodies, the you know, you remember uh, getting like a thing you had to color of like what goes on in a cell at some point in school and you're like, that's a lot of stuff. 
this is weird, mitochondria and all that kind of stuff. Like that, he designed all that. And the function of the eyes and the way like you see things and it's like inverted in your brain and somehow that you can still like grab for things and not miss it for the rest of your life. It's, it's okay. Eyes work this way. And trees, I love trees, oceans, the, the interplay of, of trees and oceans and, and wind and, and just the planet. When we talk about gravity, we talk about dark matter holding the universe together. We don't even know what this thing is. We talk about quantum physics. We talk about the curvature of space, time, and mass. We talk about all these things. Who thought it all up? It's Jesus. It's, it all is built by and contains and is kept by his kindness, his wisdom, his power. It's all his. And so, as his people, when we see humanity sin in this way, in this greedy, deceitful plunder, when we see them ungratefully, selfishly consume and ruin the world, how should we feel? We should feel sad. This is Jesus' stuff. We should mourn. Right? Hey, we see chapter 24 happening, don't we? Now, I'm not, I don't go in for like, ooh, this is happening now kind of stuff. Like, ooh, this wasn't happening then, but now it's happening now. That's not what's happening here. Isaiah is looking around. He's seeing it happen then. It has always been the proclivity of humanity and empire to greedily, deceitfully plunder whatever they could get their hands on. They just didn't have enough hands to get their hands on everything yet. And now we've done a better job at that. But it's the same thing that we see today. They were seeing then as well. You go back into Egypt and the story of Egypt and Israel and how they are deceitfully plundering the earth on the backs of the slaves. This hasn't stopped. It was, it's all the way back in Genesis. But we see this happen all around us, don't we? We see we, thousands and thousands of acres of farmland and not a single earthworm. Thousands of acres of islands in the ocean made up of plastic. And thousands of hours of streaming content. Billions of gallons of alcohol so that we don't have to worry about that stuff. Or what have we gotten for all that we've done? We've gotten what Isaiah 24 describes. We've gotten an increase of joylessness and hopelessness. That's what we've gotten. That's what it has produced. And so we, we should mourn. We should mourn. But also, we can praise. As we see this ruin that sin brings about, we can praise Jesus. We can praise Jesus when we see the consequences for sin. Right? When Jesus, again, this goes back to the thing about the, the, the judgment is built into the command. When Jesus laid out all things, when he created all things, he built into them consequences for sin, consequences for breaking his word, for misusing his world. And when we see those consequences for sin, we can praise Jesus for his wisdom and his righteousness. We can praise him for being so just and keeping his word and doing what's right. But also knowing Jesus the way that we know him, knowing God the way that we know God in Christ, we know that why does God do everything that he does? Anything that God does, he does in love. Everything that God does is meant to lead sinful people to repentance. And so we can praise God because we know that the consequences that we see in the world are meant to lead people to repentance. And we can, we can praise him as well for his mercy. So these judgments that we see in the world are part of Christ's design, but they're also an opportunity to repent and be delivered from 
a greater judgment that's going to come. All right, so, so now let's come to the number of the issue for us. In this world, we get, we're going to have troubles. We know that. But here's the great contribution of Isaiah 24 to our lives. In knowing the Lord, we can add joy to our sorrows. Everybody's going to have sorrows. Everybody's going to have troubles. But we who know the Lord can mix joy in with that. We can have hope in our sorrows and in our troubles. Because we know that the word of Christ is not just that sin has consequences. The word of Christ is that sinners can have hope. Sinners can be saved. We know that sinners deserve consequences, but in Christ we know that foolish sinners can be saved. And that's why the the people on the ark are singing. That's why they're singing. And in the story of Jesus, we most clearly see these truths to be presented to us. How those who sin and who suffer deservedly can yet enjoy the undeserved blessings of grace. We see in the story of Jesus how God can be just and righteous and yet also the justifier of those who put their faith in him. We see in the story of Jesus how seasons of sufferings give way ultimately to glory. And we hear the apostles describe how God is working all of these things together for a good that we're going to see. And that's really the ark. The good news is the ark. The good news embodied and captured in our song and in our community. This is the ark. This good news about Jesus. So as we conclude, let me give you a couple things that this chapter calls us to do. First of all, it calls us to praise the Lord. Right In scary and sorrowful times, we have a very unique calling. We feel sorrow like everybody else, but we are the people who have a source of joy and hope that we can mix into the sorrows. And this is why worship is so important. We do not worship on Sundays because we feel like singing. Right? It's not like nobody here this morning got up and said, I just can't believe the week I had. I'm going to go sing to God. Nobody here got up and just said, like, I feel amazing. All my aches and pains are gone. All of my relational problems have just disappeared and they're sweet and kind now. I want to go sing praises to God. Zero people ever say that ever. We sing and we worship because this is what our good God deserves and we need to hear it. And the world needs to hear it. This is the place of joy and hope. Where are you going to hear this anywhere else? Where is the world going to hear it anywhere else? We have the good news. And so worship is a kind of a witness. It's a witness to God's hope. And especially needed in scary times. So if, if you feel like this has all been business as usual the last two years, just stay faithful and keep worshiping the Lord. If you feel like it's been extraordinary, worship the Lord more. We need this especially in scary times. And, and, and don't think that what we're doing here is fiddling while the Titanic goes down. You know that, that whole story of the little, uh, little orchestra who's playing music while everybody's like panicking and Right? That's not what this is. That's what TV and the media and the world's offering is fiddling while the Titanic is going down. We're the little boat off to the side, 
surprisingly roomy, saying, hey, you're going down, get on board. That's what we're doing. So we praise the Lord. We also need to mourn the wrongs. Like, it's okay to mourn. Right? As a Christian, sometimes we feel like, I've always got to be smiling. And so you just have dead eyes and this creepy grin, right? This is like the picture the world has of Christians. It's not, it's not wrong to mourn. In fact, the center of the Bible is the Psalter, and it, it's dominated by people expressing pain and grief and worry. So it's okay to mourn. It's not wrong. But we, again, the unique contribution that God makes to the universe through his people is that we are the ones who get to mix that in with a knowledge of the Lord and stay faithful to the Lord. The last thing is do right. So being a greedy, deceitful plunderer is not okay for God's people. Greedy, ungrateful, greedy, selfish consumption is wrong. And God tells us to honor God, and that means to honor what, what Christ has poured himself into in the design of this world and the maintenance of this world, and then to love our neighbors. Can we honor God as we participate in the greedy, ungrateful exploitation of the world? Can we honor God when we don't care about what he has made good for our delight and for our gratitude? And as Wendell Berry talks about, can we love our neighbor and yet participate in or benefit from his exploitation? And can we love our neighbor if we don't give any concern to the ground off of which he lives or on which he lives? So we need to do what's right. Righteous judgment, the Bible says, is coming. But we, by God's grace, who have put our faith in Jesus, we have escaped that righteous judgment. But Isaiah 24 talks about something else. It talks about a righteous judgment that is here in every sinful, selfish, ungrateful act. That righteous judgment is present in our lives. And none of us are going to be able to escape that. So we're going to grieve, but we uniquely can also rejoice. That's, that's, the, that's the, the odd thing about Isaiah 24. I feel, you know, you, you open up National Geographic, you open up your browser, you think, woe is me, woe is me. I'm sickened by all that I see. But what stands out in this chapter is this group of people who, through it all, know the Lord and are filled with joy and song as a result. So we can also re- rejoice. And it's okay to do both things. It's okay to, it's okay to grieve but the big thing that I want to say this morning as we close is it is okay to sing. It's okay to sing as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And though we are deeply grieved as we see the state of the world, the state of the planet, the state of communities, the state of nations. As we see what sin has done and is doing, we are grieved. And yet you have given us this good news, this hope, to be a source of joy for us, a source of light for the world. We thank you, Lord. 
We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And we ask, Lord, that in our praise and in our grief, in our good works, that the world would see that light and hear that song more and more. That they would know that you are a God of righteousness and justice and that you are a God of mercy and grace. That you are eager to bring us to repentance and delighted to give us forgiveness. And would, Lord, you help us to be a people shaped by those truths and filled with them. Now please bless this word in Jesus' name. Amen.